Song of Solomon, chapter 6. And I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of the cryptic nature of, of this book. Uh, by the way, before I forget it, we'll be in Hosea next week. Uh, you'll want to at least go through chapter 3 in Hosea. Uh, we're talking about, and in this series, we're, we're going to visit some weddings. We're going to talk about some marriages. And we're going to even talk about some funerals eventually. So uh, anyway, uh, you might want to drill into that. Now here's my question, okay? Larry Stein just walked in. You'll have, you'll have a great answer for this, I'm sure. What's the greatest love song of all time? Color My World. Oh, wow. Never mind how she, why she said that, but uh, all right. What's the greatest love song of all time? My Girl. Larry, there is a softer side to you, isn't there? That's wonderful. I, I wrote a few down while you're thinking, okay? I, I really remember um, uh, the Carpenters singing close to you. I remember the Bee Gees singing. Now, this is, all this is going to tell about my age. How can you mend a broken heart? That's just a beautiful, old, kind of a sad love song. Um, uh, uh, one that my kids would recognize that maybe some of us wouldn't. Um, the, the band Toto in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, sang a song called uh, I'll Be Over You. Now, you'd have to look up the lyrics to understand what that means. Um, but it, it's, it's a very beautiful song. and It has very beautiful uh, language. Uh, uh, one of my favorites from high school was a song called Betcha By Golly Wow. By the stylistics, look at that one up. That's a really great song. Larry, you remember that song? I just, I, I can hear it right now. Um, uh, do what? Oh, at last, yeah. Well, Etta James, yeah, really, really good song. Um, um, Heather and I have been talking a lot this last year because one of the one of the contestants in the Voice was asked on the spur of the moment if he knew the song Overjoyed, Stevie Wonder's song Overjoyed. And he just starts saying, I think it's the guy that, I'm not going to say it's the guy that won it, but I think he did win it. But, um, and he starts singing Overjoyed. And uh, well, what a beautiful, beautiful song. Both the melody and the, and the words are just amazing. Um, of course, if you're, like, um, if you're like myself and Sherman, it may be George Jones singing she thinks I still care, but okay. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, if you haven't heard that one, Google it. No better country song ever, man, than She Thinks I Still Care. Okay. All right. He stopped loving her today. He stopped loving her today. That's another one. Those are kind of, yeah, Pat? What about You're Always On My Mind? You're Always On My Mind, Willie Nelson, yeah. My name is Love Me Tender. Love Me Tender. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What? Oh, Wind Beneath My Wings? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, Wayne. Unchained Melody. Yeah, that, that's a great song. It's funny that they couldn't find a title for it, but yeah. Um, yeah. You've lost that love and feeling. You've lost that love. Yeah, great. Kind of the backside of love, but yeah, you're right. Some of these are. Now, I titled the, the lesson today uh, about one, um, uh, because we're going to talk about the loveliness of a woman uh, again today, but uh, isn't she lovely? That comes from, the title of that song is from 1976, 
Brenda, that was a really, really good year. 1976, um, uh, 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 Stevie Wonder did an album called Songs in the Key of Life, and you're singing it in your head right now, aren't you? Isn't she lovely? But it was really about his daughter, the birth of his daughter Aisha, and uh, um, which I, I just find it wonderful and intriguing that a man who never got to see her talks about how beautiful she is in this beautiful song. Now, some will say that the study that we're going to do today is found in the context of the most beautiful song ever written. Um, I'm sure that's up for debate. Uh, the Song of Songs. The, the book actually, uh, in, its original, in the original language, is given the title, um, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So sometimes you'll see it in your Bibles as Song of Songs. Sometimes you'll see it as Song of Solomon most of the time. So, so often you might even see it in an older version of the scriptures as the Canticles, which is just another word for, um, for song. Um, now, the book is really challenging to understand, um, I think, because it's a poetic dialogue with various speakers interchangeably talking back and forth, but unlike a Shakespearean play, it doesn't often identify who's talking at a given time. Now, you're going to say, okay, wait a minute, guy. My Bible tells us who's talking. Okay, that was added. Okay, in the original language, when it says uh, bridegroom or the bride or the, or the, the crowd, you know, because there's, there's a group that's talking to them, to, um, what you realize is that wasn't in the original book. That they've kind of conjectured that. And I'm not sure, as I've studied a little bit, I'm not sure they've always gotten that right. Okay. Is she, is she still with me, Louise? She's, okay. Should she tell you about the whole color my world thing? No. You don't want to ask that question. It gets really sappy. It gets really sappy. You don't want to ask that question. Huh? Huh? Amen. It has to do with 1976, but okay. Now, now, the question is here, is Solomon wrote it. I think there's not much debate about that. But is he writing about himself and his love uh, of course, you got to go from there to, if so, which one? I mean, he had, okay, he had a thousand women at one time, all right? So, okay, which one? Which kind of taints this a little bit. Um, uh, a few commentators suggest that um, this is a, about a woman who... Um, attracts him, Solomon, by her natural beauty, both inside and out, but her desire is for someone else. That's really interesting to me. Uh, look at 1-7. Look at 1-7. Did I get that right? Yeah, look at 1-7. Tell me, O you who my soul loves, now this is probably the woman, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? And so the idea is uh, she's in love with a shepherd boy, a young shepherd man. And, uh, but Solomon, has cut, she's kind of caught Solomon's intention. Um, and her, but her desire is for this shepherd. Now, um, 
um, look at 216. Okay, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. See that? Look at 710. All right. I am my beloved's and his desires for me. Um, anyway, it, it, it is, I'm gonna, just going to tell you, uh, it's a very erotic, if you've, I've read it several times this week, and uh, every time I did, I closed the shades. And, you know, it's, it's kind of erotic. <laughs> And, uh, and wonderful in, in so many ways. Now, uh, there is one other position that I found this week that I think was this, kind of interesting. Um, and I'll, I'm going to read to you from uh, Ray Stedman. I, I read several commentators, and it was interesting how you would read two different books and get an absolutely opposite view. That's how cryptic uh, this is. This comes from Ray Stedman. He's going to say, um, um, in the Bible, sex, like every other subject, is fr handled frankly and dealt with forthrightly. It's set forth as God intended it to be. So first and foremost, the Song of Solomon is a love song, describing with frankness and yet with purity the delight of a man and his wife in one another's bodies. There's nothing pornographic or obscene about it, nothing licentious. As you read through it, you can see how beautifully and chastely it approaches the subject. Um, the book, now this is interesting, I, 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 I kind of, I like this thought. The book comes to us on what we would call musical play form. The characters in this play are Solomon, the young king of Israel. This was written in the beginning of his reign and all the beauty and manliness of his youth. And the Shulamite, that's the girl. She was a simple country lass of unusual loveliness who fell in love with the king when he was disguised as a shepherd lad working in one of his own vineyards in the north of Israel. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that he undertook expeditions to discover what life was like on various levels. Once he disguised himself as a simple country shepherd lad, and in that state he'd met this young lady. They fell in love, and after they'd promised themselves to each other, he went away and was gone for some time. The Shulamite girl cries out for him in her loneliness. Then comes the announcement that the king in all his glory is coming to visit in the valley. While the girl is interested in this, she's not really concerned because her heart longs for her lover. But suddenly she receives word that the king wants to see her. She doesn't know why until she goes to see him and discovers that he is her shepherd lad. He takes her away and they're married in the palace. That's a very wonderful story. Not sure it's true, but it's a very wonderful story. Uh, okay, so you get my point here. By the way, is everybody needing to kind of do this right here? Whew, huh, you know? Yeah, it's getting hot in here. Do what? Oh, it is kind of, it's kind of chilly in here. But. Anyway, I, I just said all this to say there's some debate and not a real clear track on, um, on what this is, kind of what is exactly taking place, but we can learn a lot from it nonetheless. Now, I, I would hasten also to say that um, uh, one of the things that is said about this particular passage, of this particular book, is um, that um, it has been seen historically as allegory. Okay? Now, just, just briefly, as allegory, and, and uh, back in a, in a more um, Victorian day, this was seen as an allegory that the story was just a story and it represented 
the love of God for Israel, and then in our day would rep represent the love of Jesus for the church, the bride of Christ, okay? Really nice thoughts, and we can glean some stuff from that. I'll talk about that in a little bit, but probably not, okay? Probably take it at face value, what you can glean from it, and it's, it's a, a celebration, this book, of human attraction and love and all those things. Now, Bob, if you can do it without turning red, okay? Yeah, do Go to 6, chapter 6, read 4 through 7. Would you do that? You think, I think it would have been. I think it would be, yeah, you're right. You're loving it already, aren't you? Okay, now. Now, by the way, this is the G section, the rated G section of this. There's some PG-13 stuff in here, too, so we'll try to... Larry's getting hot already, okay. Now, here's the deal. He's going to describe this girl who's caught his eye, and he's going to praise her for her beauty in several ways. Let's look at two or three ways here that he does this. Now, he's first going to praise her for her natural beauty. Now, he references here in verse 4 uh, a, a city by the name of Terza. Now, I put one reference. I'll give you another one. Um, Terza is mentioned in, in Joshua 12, 24. Um, it is, uh, Terza becomes, and by the way, you can also find it, find references to it in, um, in 1 Kings 16, verse 8. Terza becomes the capital at one time of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, after the kingdom separates um, and divides. And, uh, and one of the reasons for that is not only geographical, but this place was just stunning in natural beauty. So the idea is, uh, in Terza, and in, in him calling her Terza, immediately the reference would be uh, to this Canaanite city that was conquered back in the time of Joshua and uh, is this place of lush hillsides, flowing streams. Uh, it's a jewel-like city, and everybody would recognize that. And, and he's saying here, she's like this. So the idea here is that she has about her a natural beauty, okay? Secondly, then, the second reference he uses is he compares her with Jerusalem. I think that's interesting. Guys, I'm not sure I would, I would use this, um, you know, don't compare your girl to a, a town, you know. Uh, boy, Rhonda's like Paola. You know, I probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> probably do that. Not that Paola isn't lovely to me, but, okay, um, you know. Ralph, don't use Shawnee. I mean, you know, probably not. Okay, I, I don't know, but but he compares her to Terza, which is this beautiful garden, and then he compares her to Jerusalem, which I find this really interesting here. The, the reference to comparing her with Jerusalem, uh, uh, Jerusalem was a place that started out not all that attractive, but 
undergoes massive and expensive construction projects during Solomon's reign. Solomon makes Jerusalem one of the wonders of the world at the time. And uh, so you could argue here that, that his reference here is that this, she is also not only just has this natural beauty, but she also is a person of impeccable grooming. Okay? She is not going to make it on the women of Walmart list. Okay? Don't look that up, by the way. Some of those images you can't unsee. All right? You know, you know I'm right. It's like, do these people own a mirror? Okay. Not our friend, the Shulamite woman. Her, her, um, her attractiveness is not only natural, but she also presents herself really well. There's, there's kind of a grooming involved in this as well. And then the third reference is not quite as easy to come up with in verse 4. But um, talking about she's as awesome or, or magnificent as an army with banners. Okay, uh, that reference we think has to do with her clothing, colorful clothing. She dresses really well. Uh, imagine here the reference of an army parading with its banners and brightly colored uniforms and polished, gleaming weaponry. You know, it's kind of the idea. The word picture here is that um, um, this this woman really uh, presents herself well, inspires awe, all that kind of thing. So. Uh, this is quite a girl. Now, verse 5, I ask the question, how has the suitor, whoever he is, if it's some shepherd boy, or if it's Solomon, or if it's Solomon masquerading as a shepherd boy, so how is he affected by her when he first sees her? Do what? Overwhelmed. That's a great word. Captivated. Other words you'd come up with? Do I? He's smitten. That's a good word. He's smitten. Well, I, I hear the laughter, but what? Twitter painted. Twitter Yeah. Okay. That's a modern word. All right. He's overwhelmed as he look as, as and the idea is she looks at him, and he's almost embarrassed that she would look at him. He says, I had to look away uh, because she is so rapturously beautiful. This is more than just a hubba hubba. This is more than wow. Okay. You got to be of a certain age to understand the hubba hubba reference too, don't you? Okay. All right. Um, and, and then he refers to her. He starts using all these agrarian references here that I'll talk about in just a minute, but uh, he's going to talk about her hair, okay, in the, at the end of verse 5, as, uh, as like a flock of goats. So I, I, I find that interesting. Now, the image you need to see it, is in your head, as, as I hear it, read about it being described, is um, uh, this, this is a flock of black goats, and there's hundreds of them, and they're descending a hill, and they kind of wave. It kind of looks like a wave from a distance. So this is, she's a Breck girl. She's got... You know, her hair is wavy and black and beautiful, okay? Um, there's another, another, old, uh, um, another old reference. Now, verse 6, and I think the place where you first started giggling at Bob Reading is talking about her teeth. 
They're striking. Okay? Go to chapter 1. There's a reason, a couple of reasons why they're probably striking. Okay? Somebody read verse 5 and 6 from chapter 1. Somebody got it? Okay, so he's, he's really, she smiles at him, and look at her teeth. Okay, now, a couple things are going on here, and I, I went back to chapter 1 to pick it up. She's probably dark. She's been in the sun a lot, okay, because uh, she works in the sun, all right? So the fact that her teeth are white it is even um, more striking because she is dark, Okay. She smiles and just knocks his eyes out. So, first of all, since she is dark, uh, her teeth seem even whiter. Secondly, um, and there are other references in the book to this, her teeth are straight in line. Okay? No need for orthodonture with this girl. All right? And uh, third, uh, she has all of them. Okay, she has all of her teeth, yeah. I mean, and in that day, that was a kind of a remarkable thing. She's got all her teeth, they're straight, they're really white, and against this darker skin, she is just absolutely stunning. And it, it is so stunning and so striking to him that he can barely look at her. Okay, now, verse 7 is, I'll, I'll fill in the blank for you here, uh, it's an appreciation, what he's going to say about her in 7 is an appreciation of a healthy appearance. A healthy appearance. Look at 4.3. Just turn back. If you're like me, I can just look across the page. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Now, there, she is veiled, but there's this pomegranate thing going on that he is kind of interested in. And what I would say is, if you, you know, we don't eat... Do they have pomegranates at Crest? I don't know. Do they? Okay. I like them. You kind of chew up the seeds, right? And one of my favorite mental images from the Franco Zeffirelli film about Jesus of Nazareth was, I remember Jesus just kind of eating a pomegranate and it was going all down his beard. And I'm thinking, that's just a cool scene, one of the coolest scenes from that. And if you've eaten a pomegranate, they're delicious. But they're kind of rosy. Okay, so think of a peach or a pomegranate that's being described here. Behind the veil, you can just see that she's got this healthy glow about her, that she has rosy cheeks um, that, are, that, are, that he's kind of uh, smitten with here. Now, what we've got to deal with here is what beauty is described as the feminine characteristics when described determining beauty or describing beauty has changed, has it not, throughout history? Okay? Probably, probably, if I said to Rhonda in 1976, you remind me of a brick outhouse. <laughs> it would not have gotten her attention as much as it did Sally when Buzz might have said that to her. Okay? 
my dad and mom, okay? All right? <laughs> because things have changed. Uh, it's probably not a nice thing in 1976 to be referred to as an outhouse, okay? Um, it, those kind of things change. At one time, tattoos and other mark have long been seen as attractive features of beauty in lots of places. At one time, the feet of Chinese girls were bound so that they wouldn't grow. To have small feet in that culture was a thing of beauties that also had positive social class and negative health implications. So they literally try to squeeze their feet from, from growing. Um, the elongated brass-ringed necks of women of the Cayenne tribe near Thailand-Myanmar border exhibit another unique perception of beauty. Um, in a practice now prohibited, Mauritian women at one time were force-fed to make them heavy and more desirable. desirable. So to be fat was kind of a good thing. And so, so if you were wanting to kind of impress your girlfriend, you might say, or if you wanted to, if, if this was written in that uh, culture, you might say, she really doesn't sweat much for a fat girl. So, okay. <clears throat> All right. I, sorry, I just had to go there, but I'm sorry. Now, so the idea here is there's a widely varying beauty standard. And so what is really beautiful? It's a subjective matter. It also suggests, I think, that there's more to beauty than physical characteristics. You got to go with me back two books to the left, okay? To Proverbs 31. And somebody read verse 30. The same writer reaches this conclusion. Stay there for a minute, Stella. Charm is deceptive. And beauty is fleeting. Beauty is fleeting. I've read it in another translation. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Okay? Now, girls, I'm going to tell you this. No one can take that away from you. Age will only make that better. Okay? The attractiveness that comes from a godly heart only improves with age and, and spiritual maturity. You know? Wouldn't you love it for someone to have spent 30 minutes for you and just as you walk away say, isn't she lovely? Because of what you said. Because of the Jesus that they see in you. By the way, this can happen with boys as well as girls. You know it? I'm going to leave you with that thought. Let's go on in our study. John, can I get you to go over to the next little section, 8 through 12, same chapter? Okay. A 
Okay, go, man. Sorry. Okay. Now the suitor, especially if this is Solomon, is experienced. Okay. Put that in that line there. He's experienced. Um, you know, I, I've always kind of thought of this book as being early before Solomon was married. Uh, certainly before he was so incredibly married as he was to 700 women. But um, I don't know that. But I'm just saying, he's, he was really, uh, really experienced here. And so he's talking about that. It, it almost going to sound like he's kind of bragging about that. Uh, now, I want us to go to a place because I think it's, it's important that we deal with this. Go to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. We want to go to chapter 34. And there's a warning here for kings or people in leadership. Exodus 34. I'm going to read verse 15 and 16. Otherwise, he says, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Uh, so the idea here is uh, Solomon didn't catch the warning. Solomon has made over his career as a king, makes lots of political alliances. And almost every one of those political alliances, um, you know, when, he, when they, you know, imagine here uh, a couple of heads of state and they got, the, they got the pins and they're signing all the, you know, the treaty stuff. Imagine then what happens next is uh, when he signs an alliance, the guy that he's signed the alliance with gives him a girl, one of his daughters, to be his wife. So he, he's kind of gotten a lot of these from all of these alliances. And that's kind of part of Solomon's problem and, and where it kind of ends up. But he says, now here's the point. Here's the, the uh, kind of um, uh, where we've got to kind of see the, the comparison here. He knows lots about women. But according to verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 9, this girl is unique. This girl's different. I put the reference of 1 Samuel 16 on there. This is when David, his dad, is being choose, chosen as king. And, and uh, Samuel is going to say that God tells him that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? At the heart. Okay? He's going to look at her. He's going to compare her favorably to all of these other alliances and all of these other women. Now, I... I, I have to kind of use this illustration. 36 influential members of the motion picture industry gathered in 1927 to launch the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. 36 of them. It was to be a means of honoring outstanding contributions to the production of motion pictures. Membership in the Academy today numbers 6,000 in 17 different categories. On Oscar night, the industry recognizes artists whose work in the past year has been exemplary. The physical appearances of those artists being a non-issue. But the public, 
seems to be a lot more interested in what everybody looks like. Isn't it interesting? As you read the section, as you listen to what John read to us a few minutes ago, what you're recognizing is that when this girl shows up at court, she looks nothing like anybody in court. And those who are on the red carpet, their heads are turned by her. There's something different about her. She's rougher. She's darker. Not as finely dressed. But there's just something about this girl. Okay, so she's unique in that way. Now, once again in verse 10, the word majestic is used. If uh, you're reading from uh, the New American Standard, it uses the word awesome in the New American Standard Version. Probably a good way to use this one. It, it's this idea um, that, that she is, uh, is pretty amazing. Now, in verse 11, verse 11 and 12 are hard to deal with. Give me just one minute to kind of deal with it. In verse 11, what I think happens is the suitor, whether it's King Solomon or whoever, the suitor takes a walk, okay? And he's contemplating all these things, including his love for this woman. He takes a walk, and he begins to look in the gardens near the palace, and, uh, and it causes him then to think about her beauty. And in verse 12, which is one of the most cryptic verses in all of Scripture, from what I understand, it's certainly a hard verse for me to catch. He likens his love a little bit here to the king's matchless privileges. He talks about, why, you know, if I wanted to right now, I could hop on a chariot and just ride. That's, that's a unique experience. He, and I, th I think one of the things he's saying here is he's saying, imagine it if, and he's saying, if I went through Jerusalem on a chariot, that everybody would come out of their house to cheer me, to adore me, to give me adulation. And I think he's saying, wouldn't it be amazing if I caught her attention like that? I think that's what he's saying. Okay, now, if you've got, you got a better interpretation of it, then, then uh, you can share it next week, okay? Now... Here's what I want to close with, okay? We've got a few minutes left. Here's what I want to close with. The issue is, I think, okay? As in most things, can we agree, as in most things, there's more here than meets the eye? Can we at least agree upon that? I think we can. As in most things, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. And we kind of got to deal with that a little bit. And I'm going I'm to take this a little different direction as we, um, as we close out. Um, an extreme example of that, the, the interpretation of Song of Solomon of being a, a love song of Jesus to the church uh, was um, a, a French, a medieval French abbot by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. He lived from 1090 to 1153 I've read some of his poetry. It's amazing. He was the most famous preacher of his day. By the, um, Ron, do you remember singing Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts? I mean, yeah, that's Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, 
by the time of his death, he had completed 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon, and he'd only gotten to chapter 3. Okay? Less than halfway through. In these sermons, Bernard explores the spiritual idea of the heavenly bridegroom, Christ the Word, and his relationship with his earthly bride, whether the church or individual believer. Okay? That's very interesting to me. Um, so I'm going to kind of take a page out of that book a little bit. And I'm going to ask you to do two separate things. A couple of things in two separate areas. Okay, first of all, if you're married or if you're in love, I'm going to ask you to remember your first love. You remember when that first happened? Fred, you remember that? I, I bet you do. I bet you do. Remember when it first happened. Scott, I know you did because you told me about it. Okay? Remember when you were first in love. That's the first thing I'm going to, because that's what's going on here. And remember, if you're married, remember when you first saw on your wedding day your bride. It's a little different in my day than it is in this day. The bride and the groom didn't see each other all day. And, and I just remember thinking, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You know? You know? And I've been, I've done lots and lots of weddings, and, and I've leaned over to the groom and I've said something like, Wow, man, isn't she lovely? Because I could see it on his face. Okay? So I'm going to ask you to remember that in the hard times and in the good times. But also, I'm going to ask you to do this, and maybe this is more important than an application for us today, because I think all of us can do it. I'm going to ask you to mine the scriptures, to study the scriptures, especially maybe the book of Psalms, for instance, to help you describe the Savior in terms like this, in terms like Bernard of Clairvaux did. What I'm going to ask you to do is to use worship music, songs, maybe there'll be songs we sing today in church, that help you to describe the Lord Jesus in loving and adoring terms. I don't think we do very well with this. Okay? So think back to if you're my age and, and uh, used to sing in a hymn book, sing out of a hymn book, remember the great poetry of Fairest Lord Jesus. Okay? Which was just a song of adoration to our matchless Savior. What I'm going to ask you to do is put back into your vocabulary, if it, if it was ever there, words of adoration to the Savior, okay? Here's one thing I'm going to ask you to do to help you do that, okay? At least once each day, in some way, and you can just say it very simply, or you can put it right in a poem, or you can sing a song, whether anybody's listening or not, once every day, tell Jesus that you love him. You know, we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. That's a profound and wonderful truth. But how often are you telling him that you love him? How often are you saying to him, oh, Lord Jesus, you're so good. You are so beautiful. You are lovely. Lord, my relationship with you 
is unlike any other relationship in my life. And I just want you to know that I really, really do love you. Would you try that for a week? At least one time a day. Take a minute. Take two minutes. Take five minutes just to tell Jesus that you love him and how much you love him. Can I make you a promise? It will change your life. It'll change your perspective on Jesus. He'll no longer be quite as unapproachable. Tell him you love him. Now, by the way, one way to start this would be to look for ways in the songs that we sing in whatever service you're going to be in today, look for ways to express your affection to him now. Okay. Bless you. Be in Hosea next week. <laughs>